This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for online success that helps you build the perfect website to make your business stand out. Whether you're starting a passion project or managing a growing brand, Squarespace makes it easy for you to create beautiful websites, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to content to time, all in one place on your terms. Unless you're a pro-coding design wizard, and confession time, I'm very much not, making a quality, good-looking website can feel like one of the hardest bits of business. That's why Squarespace is here to help you every step of the way, providing fully customizable professional layouts and templates to choose from. It can also take care of those fiddly bits like device optimization, paywalls, and invoicing. So if, like me, you're more at home with manuscripts than JavaScript, Squarespace is the tool for you. Head to squarespace.com slash history10 for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use offer code HISTORY10, that's HISTORY10, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. The leather straps on William Marshall's armour creak as his squire pulls them tight. The metal links of his chainmail vest clank as he bends and his squire helps him squeeze into it one more time. He stretches his hand and pulls on his gauntlet. He bangs the metal glove against the armour of his chest. He checks over his horse's saddle and gives the animal an affectionate pat on its flanks. It snorts gently as it feels his steady hand. How many times has Marshall done this in his life? More than he can count. It's May 1217. He's nearly 70 years old, and all those decades hurtling round tournament fields, sieges and skirmishes have inevitably taken their toll. His old bones are groaning almost as much as his armour straps. But you know what they say, age is just a number. For Marshall, duty and loyalty trumps everything else. He's served the Plantagenet dynasty for longer than most of the men around him have been alive. Now the family is facing the gravest crisis it has ever known. It's on the brink of being wiped out. England is under invasion. Louis the Lion, eldest son of the French King Philip Augustus, has a gang of his own troops and rebel English barons running riot across the country. They control London and have been seizing the ports. They're getting close to a final victory. So yet again, Marshall is pulling on his armour and preparing to try and save the day. His squire, standing patiently beside him, offers him his helmet. Marshall tells him to wait. Everything hangs on what happens in the next few hours. He needs to see what's happening in front of him. What's happening is that he's outside the northwest gate of the city of Lincoln, commanding several hundred other knights. The centre of Lincoln is at the top of a steep hill, protected by old Roman walls. Inside the walls is a rebel army. They're laying siege to the castle that's at the very heart of the city. The castle is being defended by a woman called Nicola de la Haye. 
She's in charge because she inherited the position of constable from her father. And she's doing a sensational job of holding off the rebels. Nicola's almost as old as Marshall, and she's cut from pretty much the same cloth. She's held the castle against a siege army before, during the chaotic years of Richard the Lionheart's reign. So Lincoln Castle is in good hands. But even Nicola can't hold it forever. Which is why Marshall is here, to force a way into the walled part of the city and drive out the rebels. Do that, and the Plantagenet loyalists will have won control of a crucial part of the country. Fail, and it's all over. Around the other side of the city walls, Marshall can hear a tremendous crashing and banging. That's good news. He's sent some of his forces round there to create a distraction and draw enemy troops to that gate. The ploy seems to be working, and there are fewer men guarding his gate. So he sends his men forward to try and force them open. Mercifully, it doesn't take long. And once they're done, it's time for the real showdown. Marshall calls to the knights around him to saddle up and ready themselves. They're going in, and they're going to hit the rebels with everything they've got. It's death or glory. Marshall gives a rousing speech, telling his men, If we die, God will place us today in paradise. He pushes his feet in the stirrups and gets ready for action. The blood is thudding in his ears, but through it, he hears someone calling his name. It's his squire. What's the boy bothering him for at a time like this? Suddenly, Marshall realises. His squire is trying to tell him he's forgotten to put on his helmet. Relieved, he grabs it and jams it down on his head. Then he kicks his horse and starts his final charge. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a Dynasty to Die For, Season 3, Episode 12, Salvation. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
People like to say that since the Norman conquest of 1066, England has never again been invaded. That's garbage. In fact, in the Middle Ages, there's a long history of England being invaded, sometimes pretty successfully. Think back to season one of this podcast. Remember, old Henry II himself invaded England a couple of times when he was a lad and ended up becoming king. So when Louis the Lion invades England, it's one of the great sliding doors moments in British history. It's the moment the French royal family could have established a branch across the English Channel. There could have been a united kingdom of England and France, with one king ruling in both Westminster and Paris. And to be honest, it's not a case of could, it's a case of should. On paper, everything favours the French. Louis is a grown man, with lots of political and military experience. He's got the resources of his famous dad, Philip Augustus, behind him. He's got half the barons in England begging him to take the crown. And his rival is King John, a man who has a terrible track record when it comes to fighting, and a man who's loathed by pretty much everyone, even those who can't stomach kicking him off his throne. Yes, Louis's been warned off invading England by a papal legate, Guala Bicchieri, but he's not too bothered about that. The prize is well worth falling out with the Pope over. All in all, things are lined up pretty well. So how is it that Louis invades England in May 1216, but in May 1217 the fighting is still going on in places like Lincoln Castle? Well, it's because in the year between Louis's invasion and William Marshall forgetting to put his helmet on, John has managed to pull off a masterstroke of military and political strategy. But no spoilers just yet. Last episode, we heard that John was holding his own at the start of the Civil War. At the end of 1215, he'd brought down the walls of Rochester Castle and broken the siege there. In early 1216, things keep on going his way. There's a new King of Scotland, Alexander II, the son of William the Lion. Given his father's history with John, he's decided to join in the war on the Baron's side. In early 1216, John marches an army up to the north of England and hits the Scots hard. He sweeps through the border town of Berwick-upon-Tweed, has a jolly time burning the countryside around, then sets fire to Berwick too, for good measure, before he heads south again. Then he goes 350 miles to Colchester in Essex and snatches that from the rebels. By the spring of 1216, he has a head of steam behind him. But then, the French arrive. In May, Louis lands his invasion force in Kent, and John knows he's in trouble. He's never managed to reclaim London from the barons, so if he stays in the southeast to fight, there's a real danger he could be caught between enemies in front of him and behind him. He retreats, and effectively leaves the whole of the east of England to Louis and the rebels. Which isn't very encouraging for John's allies. 
That old phrase Richard the Lionheart used to use about his brother must be ringing in their ears. Richard liked to say that John wasn't a guy who could win lands if there was anyone prepared to put up a fight against him. Fair or unfair, in 1216, it looks like Richard was right. Louis and the rebels pick off royal strongholds in the east one by one. They take England's ancient Anglo-Saxon capital, Winchester. They acclaim Louis as king in London. Alexander II of Scotland finishes licking his wounds after Berwick, takes a ship down to Canterbury and formally recognises Louis as John's replacement. With his spirit soaring, Louis starts lining up major royalist castles like Dover, Windsor and Lincoln and planning the sieges he hopes will bring them under his control too. A few big-name loyal earls start defecting to Louis. Even John's half-brother, William Longsword, goes over to the French. Which has got to sting. Longsword was one of the few family members John had left on his side. In fact, you have to wonder at John's state of mind at this point. He spends his entire childhood as the youngest son, with no land and no hope of being king. He betrays his own father and brother and eventually makes it to the top spot. Then, his entire reign is disaster after disaster. And now, he faces losing it completely. Is he finally realising he pushed people too far? Is he regretting his violent vendettas? realising that maybe, just maybe, he wasn't cut out to be king? Or is he blindly refusing to admit it, and furiously blaming the barons, and just about anyone but himself? We'll never know. We do know that John wastes the summer away in the West. Only in the autumn of 1216 does he decide he has to try and put up some sort of resistance, and he heads towards Lincoln, where Louis has an army surrounding Nicola Delahaye's castle. But John never gets there, because on the way he pulls off the masterstroke I mentioned earlier. He dies. Exactly how John dies is something the chroniclers aren't totally sure about. Some say he's poisoned, others that he eats too many unripe peaches. That one seems pretty unlikely to me, because peaches are typically ripe in the summer and well gone by October. We can get into seasonal fruits and conspiracy theories about John's death on this week's subscriber episode of This Is History Plus. What does seem to happen is that around the 9th or 10th of October, John catches dysentery. Which, you'll remember from season one, is what saw off his eldest brother, Henry the Young King. Like the Young King all those years before him, John tries to muddle through, but he gets progressively weaker and weaker. He's still travelling with his army, but bad luck seems to be stalking him now. At one point, the army tries to cross the huge tidal estuary on the border of Lincolnshire, known as the Wash. This is a notoriously boggy area, full of quicksand and rapidly changing tides, and half of John's baggage train sinks into the sucking sand and mud. 
It's said later that his jewels, maybe even his crown, go under, but this is more likely to be a legend. Either way, John struggles on to Newark, now being carried on a litter. He gets to Swineshead Abbey, and on the night of the 18th to 19th of October 1216, he dies. Not massively surprisingly, John dies with a bit of a guilty conscience. One of his final acts is to grant some money to the family of Matilda and William de Bruce, whom he starved and hounded to death earlier in his reign. I think we can file that one under too little, too late. One of the most famous phrases ever used of John comes from the chronicler Matthew Paris, who records a contemporary judgment about where John ended up after he died. Foul as hell is, it is made fouler by the presence of John. The king is dead. Can the Plantagenet dynasty still be saved? Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving, as outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes, so no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Gloucester Abbey, on October the 28th, 1216, a nine-year-old boy is crowned King of England. It's not a very grand ceremony. The crown jewels are in London, which is still held by Louis and the rebel barons. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, is in France. The boy's supporters, led by the papal legate Gualabicchieri and William Marshall, scrabble together as many bishops and nobles as they can, which isn't many, and make the best of a bad situation. The boy has a small lady's tiara placed on his head. He's pronounced Henry III, King of England. Young Henry may well be wondering what on earth to make of all this. It's just ten days since he lost his father, and now he's expected to be the figurehead for the war to kick Louis the Lion out of London. 
At this age, most kids' biggest worry is their maths homework. Poor Henry is going to have to grow up fast. Fortunately for Henry, he has a hard core of loyalists by his side. Guala is one, and of course, William Marshall is another. Which is what brings us back to where we started this episode, at Lincoln Castle in the spring of 1217. Marshall has stuck with the Plantagenets through thick and thin. He's going to make sure young Henry gets the kingdom of his grandfather Henry II, or die trying. And if you followed our story to this point, you won't be surprised to learn that at Lincoln in May 1217, Marshall rides into the city and crushes the rebels outside the castle. A group of his mercenary crossbowmen manage to sneak into the castle, get up on the walls and start sniping at the enemy below, causing chaos. Then Marshall and the knights sweep through the streets, sending the enemy troops packing. They kill the rebels' commander, then set about robbing the city blind to punish the citizens for supporting Louis. They also capture a huge number of rebel barons. It's a massive blow to Louis' overall campaign and the start of a fight back for Team Plantagenet. Cleverly, as soon as Henry was crowned in 1216, Marshall and Guala reissued Magna Carta as a sign of good faith. Straight after the victory at Lincoln, they issue it again. It's a smart move. It shows that they're loyal to the Plantagenet dynasty, but sympathise with all the complaints about John, and accept the need for reform. It means that the rebel barons who haven't been captured start wavering. Why are they supporting this Louis guy again? Do they really want to be bossed around from Paris? At this point, Louis realises he's in trouble. Firstly, he's not so obviously the good guy in this war anymore. Secondly, the other side has got a lot stronger. Louis asks his dad Philip to send him more troops, to reinforce the places where the war is still going his way like in Kent. In August 1217, a French fleet, led by a renegade pirate called Eustache the Monk, arrives off the White Cliffs of Dover. But by now, the Plantagenet loyalists are feeling pretty confident. The wind is in their sails, literally. An English fleet, led by Hubert de Burgh, engages Eustache and his ships off the coast of Sandwich. They batter the French fleet, capturing many ships. They catch Eustache and execute him on the deck. Those French ships that can get away do so. The war is now in its endgame. After a series of negotiations, Louis agrees to give up his claim to the English crown. In September 1217, he agrees the Treaty of Lambeth. He promises to go home and never to invade again. He gets a bumper payday, 10,000 marks, 
but there's no dressing this up as anything but a humiliating defeat. So Plantagenet England is saved. It was a close-run thing, and had John not done the decent thing and died, we may well have had a King Louis I, and an entirely different history. But can we really give the credit to John just for catching dysentery and going to hell? Of course, the answer is no. Really, the credit has to go with the last man standing. William Marshall. He's been with us in our story virtually since day one. It's his loyalty, his willingness to put himself in danger, and his near-crazy belief in chivalry and doing the right thing that has repeatedly saved the House of Plantagenet. Even heroes like Marshall, however, can't keep doing it forever. He and Guala shepherded the new king through the first difficult years of his reign. But by 1219, Marshall is getting weak and tired. That May, almost two years to the day since he won the Battle of Lincoln, Marshall goes to his estate at Caversham in Berkshire and takes to his bed. Knowing he's dying, he takes the vows of a Knight Templar, so he can be buried in their church, which is modelled on the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. He also summons the Plantagenet King Henry, now eleven, to his bedside. He gives him a stern warning. Sire, I beg the Lord our God that if I ever did anything to please him, that in the end he grant you to grow up to be a worthy man. And if it were the case that you followed in the footsteps of some wicked ancestor, and that your wish was to be like him, then I pray to God, the son of Mary, that he does not give you long to live, and that you die before it comes to that. Then on the 14th of May, 1219, Marshall dies. It's the end of a great life, which will be memorialised in the famous verse biography we've heard so much from in this podcast. He leaves a towering legacy over England, and he makes it clear that despite all his loyalty to the Plantagenets, he always knew what was right and wrong. It's now up to young Henry to make the choices that will spare him and England the painful times suffered under King John. The question is, will Henry III be able to do it? Will he follow the example from his mentor, the greatest knight who ever lived, or that of his father, the worst king who ever reigned? To find out, join us when we return next year for season four of This Is History, a dynasty to die for. This Is History is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It's written and hosted by me, Dan Jones. The series producer and story editor is Georgia Mills. Louisa Field and Dave Anderson are the executive producers. The mixing and sound design is from Chris O'Shaughnessy. The production manager is Poppy Thompson. 
Emily Webb is the marketing manager. Matt Atchison composed the original music. The studio engineers are Gulliver Tickle and Matthias Torres Soul. Additional production by Julia Doyle, Tom Fuller and Rosie Morotro. Before you go, yes, you did hear us right. We'll be continuing the Plantagenet story in Season 4, which I'm very excited about. And while I'm writing it, I won't be leaving you empty-handed. Over on This Is History Plus, I'll be releasing bonus episodes where I interview some of my favourite historians and hear your questions about the series so far. There's also tonnes of subscriber-only episodes waiting for you there, with all sorts of additional info about our Plantagenets. Plus you get access to all episodes ad-free.